following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Lord Jesus, I ask that today, by the power of your Spirit, you would open the heavens that we could understand and we could walk free, delivered from captivity, free in you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. The children of Israel had been under the captivity of the Philistines now for almost 40 years. 40 years is almost a generation. So the normal for kids growing up was to be under the power of the Philistines. Now, just a, a bit of a side, the Philistines were people of the sea. They were fishermen. And then they settled from the island of Crete into the land of Canaan. And they became a very powerful force politically, militarily. Constant struggle with the children of Israel. From the very time Joshua swept in, they did not clean out all the Philistines. And the Philistines prospered greatly. Each time the children of Israel would walk in rebellion against the Most High, they would let the worship go. They would stop offering the sacrifices. They would stop walking with their God. He would give them over to a foreign oppressor. That's one of the ways of God. Now, we think America could never be invaded. America will be invaded. And we will have to fight for our very existence on the soil that we now call United States of America. Because we have utterly turned away from the living God of heaven. State of New York, just voting. Gay marriage. California. Judge imposing against the will of the people gay marriage. In Scripture, we're told that homosexuality is a sign of the judgment of God on a people, not on the person who is a homosexual. That person may have thought they were born that way. But it's a sign, according to Scripture, of the judgment of God coming on that culture. So what was unthinkable when I was a child is now commonplace in America because the whole nation is being given over to judgment. Well, the children of Israel financially were doing well. They were able to manage the taxes the Philistines imposed upon them. They were willing to put up with the difficulties of life because they still had their worship. They could erect their high places, their Asherah poles. They had freedom to worship. It wasn't the God of heaven they were worshiping, but they were worshiping. How could God turn them aside and rescue them from the Philistines when they didn't think they needed to be rescued from the Philistines. 
That's like my seeing someone swimming in a swimming pool and I run quickly, I dive in and I grab them and I pull them out and they charge me with assault because they didn't need to be rescued. Never mind that they were flailing and about to go under for the last time. If in their mind they didn't need to be rescued, I'm in trouble. So the children of Israel had no concept that they needed to be rescued. But there was a couple who had no children. The husband and the wife were told by an angel, specifically the wife, that she was going to have a son and that they were to raise him as a Nazarite, meaning he was not to cut his hair, no fruit of the vine. He was to walk righteous in his life. He was to be utterly given over to God from his birth. Remind you of Samuel. God chose several times a son or a daughter. Remember Deborah. She delivered Israel. So God would choose a man or a woman, and they would rise up in righteousness and deliver the nation. But always in those cases, the nation thought they needed delivering. But in this case, there was no concept of deliverance. It had always been this way. The Philistines were their rulers. They were happy. They were prosperous. So what's the problem here? It says the God of heaven began to move on Samson when he was just a little boy. God blessed him, it says. But his first action that is recorded is that he's going down amongst the Philistines and he sees a woman there that he likes. And he says to his parents, please get her for my wife. I want her. And they said, aren't there many women who are Jewish? You could marry one of, I want that woman. The scripture says that what they don't know is that God is moving in Samson to go get this Philistine wife so he can stir trouble up between the Jews and the Philistines. I mean, God is having a hard time getting a handle on people's lives. And it makes me want to stop and ask, is God having a hard time getting a handle on your life? You have enough food? You have some place to stay? Have you got transportation? Is your life in turmoil? If not, God will probably have a very difficult time getting a handle on you to get you free. That's why Brother David was saying, sometimes God just has to dump us out. Because we're Americans. What do you mean? We're free. We are? How many days a year do you work to pay your taxes? That's called slavery. Oh, those are taxes. Well, when the United States was founded, we had no tax to pay. In fact, we rebelled against the British for the tax on their tea and threw it in the bay because we said, we're not paying your tax anymore. It's called the Tea Party today. Well, God's having a hard time 
getting hold of the church today because never in the history of the earth have pastors been so well educated, nor have they earned such excellent salaries. I would guess the average salary for a pastor in the Washington area is somewhere around $100,000 a year. And many are way over $100,000 a year with their benefit packages. The church is educated. It's sophisticated. The buildings are phenomenal. I can take you to churches in Washington today that have elevators and escalators and and coffee houses and restaurants and bowling alleys and swimming pools, all in the church. Health clubs in the church. Because they're lifestyle churches. It's Broadway in the church. And never is there a rebuke from the pulpit. From the pulpit, it's song and dance. Jericho City of Praise. Let's go. With wonderful music that competes with the Kennedy Center. I mean, you go to the Kennedy Center and watch an opera, as I've done, and I cry a little, I laugh a little, and I leave saying, what a great show. Well, most churches in Washington today, you go in, you laugh a little, you cry a little, and you go out and say, that was a great show. Well, God's having a hard time getting a hold of the church in America because the church is happy under the rule of the Philistines. We want to be politically correct. And now we're facing a great trauma because as states are validating homosexual marriages and the churches stand in opposition to this, as some are going to have to. The government is going to come back and remind them that they're 501c3 nonprofits. And the government is going to say, we are going to take away from you your tax-free status if you don't agree with us that homosexuality is acceptable. If you call it sin, we will take away your nonprofit status. Now, what they don't realize yet is that a part of the 501c3 is that you, when you give up your nonprofit status, you must also then give up your buildings. You have to give up your bank accounts. They have to be donated to another 501c3. So churches now are going to face in America the reality that they may lose their properties. They may lose everything. Will they lose everything or will they bend with the time and say, okay, government, we won't talk about that anymore and we will take certain portions out of the scripture. We just won't read those portions anymore to our people. All of this happened another time in the Weimar German Republic. Step by step, Hitler increased the pressure on the churches. It's interesting, just this week in the news, Delta has agreed to not allow any Jewish people to fly on Delta into Saudi Arabia. There's a great uproar now being fought in America 
over rules beginning to impinge on the freedoms of the Jewish people as again we're faced with what happened in Germany. So how is God supposed to step in and get a handle on the church in America? How can he get a hold of us? There has to be an awakening of our soul where we begin to submit to what God calls us to and recognize that the party is over. The party is over. With Samson, in revenge against the Philistines, he went to war with them. Every action that he took was not for righteousness. It was for revenge. The only way God could bestir his prophet was to make him angry enough with the culture that he went out and took revenge on the culture. Now, I pray he doesn't have to do that to us. I pray he doesn't have to dump us into circumstances where we will become so angry that we'll rise up and say, enough. Even though many today are prophesying in the secular press that we will face again in America, anarchy. As people rise up against the tax and against the loss of freedoms and against the lack of food and water and the necessities of life that people will go in the streets even as they are in Athens today. You know where the name Athens came from? Athena, the goddess of love. There's not a lot of love in Athens today. There's bitterness and anger. There's strife in the streets as the people are pouring out, angry and hostile and throwing stones, tear gas flying. Could that happen in America? Yes. So again, I'm saying as we face what's happening in America, God is going to do whatever he has to do to get the attention of his people. What does God have to do in your life to get a hold of you? To have you pay attention? I know it's disturbing. But we face the reality that God is a jealous God. God loves his people. And he wants his people to belong to him and not to the world. He doesn't want the Philistine ruling over his people. He wants to rule over them. This week I had an interesting conversation with a a college student, a young lady. We were sitting in a restaurant, she and her brothers and sisters and family and and some other couples, and there were probably 20 of us all sitting around this table in this restaurant. And the conversation was waning a little bit. It was getting boring. And when conversations begin to get boring, I start to fire up and say, I'm not going to sit here and put up with nothing. Let's talk about something real. So I turned to Miranda and I said, Miranda, Tell me, are you a liberal or are you a conservative? And her dad's eyes just 
suddenly popped open because he's a very conservative man. She said with this bright smile on her face, I'm in between. I'm a liberal sometimes. I'm not quite a conservative ever. I try to stay in the middle. I said, oh, tell me, Brenda, tell me, what is a conservative? Well, a conservative, she said, is is someone who's narrow-minded. A conservative is someone who is against progress. A conservative is someone who, who resists change with all that they have. I said, wow, that's interesting. Tell me what a liberal is. Well, a liberal is someone who wants freedom. A liberal is someone who who wants change. A liberal is someone who who believes that everyone should be able to do whatever they want to do. I said, wow, you really believe that? She said, well, what are you? I said, I'm a conservative. Well, what does conservative mean to you? Because you're not narrow-minded. I said, oh, now we can talk about it. And I began then to give some new definitions for conservatism and for liberalism. But just a bit of history. The word conservative came originally uh, out of books that were written by Edmund Buke in opposition to the French Revolution. He didn't use the word, but it was a movement against the Jacobites in the French Revolution. And there were those who wanted that French Revolution to spread to America. And out of that came vocabulary to begin to talk about the differences between a conservative and a liberal. Now, I want to go back quickly to a scripture it's found in 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 1. I hope you'll put up with a little of my foolishness. And I kind of said that today when I decided this is what I have to talk about. Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. There's a great definition of a liberal. I want to go back for just a moment. You have the Garden of Eden. It is perfect in every way. There is food to eat. There is significance. There is a a work to be done. And there is family. There is love. There is 
a brand new husband and wife, utterly in love with one another, who've been told to reproduce and fill the earth with their offspring. And then Satan comes and he says, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat from this tree, you will become gods and you will be the ones who determine what is right and wrong. Conservatism has always been a part of the belief of the holiness movement of God. As far back as you can go, the holiness movement has always been conservative. What do I mean? Do I mean narrow-minded? Absolutely not. I mean, conservatism wants to go back to the fundamental principles what God established, what is truth. And Paul is saying to his people, I'm afraid the false ideas that have been put in your mind by our culture will lead you astray. Let's go back to Samson. Samson has this beautiful woman, Delilah. And he has an affair with her. He doesn't marry her. He has an affair with her. They're shacked up with each other. The Philistines have come to her and said, look, each of the rulers of the Philistines will give you 28 pounds of silver apiece if you will find out the secret of his strength. So, of course, he plays with that. You know, weave my hair in, in the, uh, the loom, and then I'll lose all my strength. And the Philistines come out, he throws the loom off. He's as powerful as he ever was. Well, he gets a kick out of doing this. Tie me with new bowstrings, and I'll be as weak as I've ever been. Well, they do that, and he pops them off like they were flax. But finally, he is worn down, and he says, I'm a Nazarene. I took the Nazarite vow. And if my hair were cut, I'd become as weak as any other man. So she puts him comfortably to sleep on her lap. And they proceed to shave his head. And he wakes up, and he thinks, I'm going to throw it off again. Except this time he can't throw it off. The scriptures tell us that God has left him. He's taken to the prison. His eyes are gouged out. And there's a big millstone and grain. And he's put on a big beam where day after day he just walks pushing that beam. He's chained to it. The natural outcome of going with the philosophy of the Philistine, the natural outcome of seeing liberalism as freedom, casting off the reality of God, casting off 
from my life, any restraint that would hold me in a safe place results in what happened to Samson. Where he's chained and he can't get free. And some of you here know what I'm talking about because some of you are chained to bitterness or chained to anger or chained to some lust of your heart, chained to lying, chained to stealing, chained to saying things that you should never say, to grumbling, to complaining. You're chained to it and you can't break free. But you were supposed to be able to be free when you did what you wanted to do and went where you wanted to go. That's not freedom. Freedom is significant work from my hands, my heart, that makes a difference. Freedom is having a family that loves me. Walking with integrity with that family, not lying to them or cheating on them. Not stealing from them. Freedom is being able to have provision, food and drink, a house to live in, a car to drive. These are the things that bring freedom. What brings death And bondage is what the devil calls the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where I'll cast off what God has said. I'm going to go out in the big bad world, and I'm going to get revenge for people mistreating me. I'm going to have my own way. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to follow my own path, and in the process, destroy your family. Be caught in drugs, be caught in alcohol, be caught in lust, and utterly destroy your family. So you can go home tonight and you can indulge in whatever you choose to indulge in. And you may think, oh, I'm free. Are you? Are you free to walk into bondage, into captivity? into sorrow of heart, free to say whatever I want to say whenever I want to say it, walking into broken relationships, walking into misery. See, the kind of conservatism that I'm interested in is coming back into alignment with the God of heaven. In the Weimar Republic, Hitler came up with a a really neat idea. He said, let's get everybody coordinated. Meaning, let's have everybody do the same thing. Let's have people think the same way, eat the same way, walk the same way. And let's give them the labor that we want them to do to build the great war machine. And so in the literature, if you go back into the 30s, 1930s, you'll see the word coordinated all through the German literature. Because everybody 
got on the bandwagon and everybody wanted to be coordinated with everybody else. And nobody wanted to rise up and say, what's happening to the Jews is wrong. Even the U.S. government went along with it. The ambassador, Mr. Dodd, sent by Roosevelt in the early 30s to Germany, to Berlin, would write back time after time describing the events that were transpiring, the fear and the anguish. He knew there had to be an intervention or this monster was going to grow into something that would cause terror throughout the world. But our government and our State Department backed away and they said, no, we need to, we need to be tolerant and accepting. They bought into being coordinated as well. Nobody wanted to stand up and say, this is wrong. Let's stop doing it. It's going to take us down a path of destruction. In the Bible, Christians are called salt. Now, salt does two things. One, it makes things taste better. And two, it preserves things. I want to maintain with you today that by coming back into a relationship with Jesus Christ that is disciplined, consistent, is not narrowness. It's not closed-mindedness. It's the very thing that produces harmony between husbands and wives. It's the very thing that produces confidence in the day-to-day walk that we take as we're productive in our chosen place of employment. It's, it's what gives us integrity that we walk out consistently what we say we believe about this earth and about Jesus. I hear some people say to me, oh, pastor, I'm not disciplined. Well, then you're a good liberal. And it will lead you a chained prisoner pushing a heavy bar with your eyes gouged out. There has to come a point where the Christians are willing to stand up and say, this is wrong and not apologize for it. Both in our families, we need to stand up and say, this is wrong. In our communities, we need to stand up and say, this is wrong. No, I won't go that way with you. I refuse. Why? Because I'm narrow-minded? No. But because I understand the basic values of the Judeo-Christian ethic that says that every life is valuable, that everyone should be free to worship God in the way they choose to worship, that the nation should not have religious rules, and neither should they say that you can't pray in public or pray in the court or pray in school. They shouldn't set up secular, atheistic standards And then we Christians simply bow our head and say, well, we want to be coordinated with everybody else and we want to be accepted to everybody else. 
It's time to say, no, we don't want to be coordinated with darkness. We don't want to be coordinated with tyranny. We don't want to be coordinated at all with what's happening in our culture. We don't accept homosexuality. We accept the homosexual and we'll love him and we'll call him to follow Jesus Christ and to repent of his sin, but it is sin. We have to come to a place where we stop soft peddling who we are as we walk following Jesus Christ. Oh, but my classmates might not accept me. They might think I'm strange. Well, you are strange if you're a Christian. My workmates might say, Where, what planet did you get off of? Well, that's all right. That's okay. I'm headed to heaven. And I'm not going to play games with darkness anymore. And I'm not going to keep quiet when I see darkness happening. I'm going to speak about it lovingly, kindly, but firmly and say, enough, don't go there anymore. I mean, we get so caught so often, and I've gotten caught in this trap about God, that God is unconditionally loving us. If God unconditionally loved us, there would be no hell. Everybody would go to heaven, and we would have to believe universalism. None of your children do you love unconditionally. There are things that your children can do that will cause you to severely deal with their wickedness. There are things that they could even do that would cause you to go seek help outside of your family. I mean, we need to begin to understand that God has called us to adhere to the principles of Scripture and to walk with integrity before Him. Now, I confess, this is my sin. As I grew up, my dad used to say these things to me. And in my heart, I would say it's just because he's old. He doesn't know what's hip today. He doesn't know what's going on. Well, you know what? He knew all too well what was going on. Because he'd gone through it when he was a kid. He was born in 1901. I've gone back and looked at what was happening in 1910, 1915, when my dad was a kid. It was leading up to the roaring 20s. I mean, talk about a time of being hip in America. Surely the roaring 20s, it was all happening. From burlesque, I mean, you name it, it was going on in the 20s in America. This nation had turned utterly against God. And it led us into the 30s, where the judgments of God came on this nation. We're facing this again. I used to think, good old rock and roll. Well, the church says, don't go there. You know what? Rock and roll today seems very mild. In fact, it's done in almost every church in the nation. There was a time when self-esteem wasn't called self-esteem. 
It was called pride. But today, everybody's talking about how can we improve people's self-esteem? I'm coming the other way and saying, how can we get people to repent for their pride? If you have a little self-esteem left, you don't have a whole lot of repenting to do. You're on the right track. Get rid of all of your self-esteem. Have Jesus Christ esteem. Do you see what I'm talking about? Things are turned upside down so that what is bitter is sweet and what is sweet is bitter in our culture. So how do we come to Jesus in all of this mix? I want to read a passage for you out of the book of Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 6. So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. It doesn't say, continue to live in your world and be loved. That's not a part of scripture. It's continue to live in Jesus. It doesn't say continue to live in your baseball or your basketball or your football. It says continue to live in him, in Jesus. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. You know what? That doesn't sound to me like narrow-mindedness. The God who created the whole universe is saying, let me pour myself into your life until you are full of me. Now, that doesn't sound like narrowness of mind to me. That sounds like something that is so beyond any understanding I have that it makes me tremble before God. To be filled with the fullness of God instead of with darkness. To be filled with light instead of darkness. What an awesome challenge. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Let's go back to the Philistines. Here we have the people of God who were enslaved in Egypt 
They were brought out as a people. This is the only time in history. I'm talking about secular history. This is the only time in history that a whole people has been ejected from a nation and they become a great nation. Nothing else has ever happened in history like this. So this people now comes into the Cana land and it's called Cana land because the peoples who live there are descendants of Cain. These people are utterly wicked. They are so wicked that the British Museum refuses to translate many of the clay tablets because they're triple X rated. These people, the children of Israel, come in and in one campaign utterly wipe out all of the nations that live there. The power of God establishes them there. They become one of the great powers on the earth. They are recognized as a world power. Babylon is afraid of them. Assyria is afraid of them. Egypt is afraid of them. They are a world military power. They can put over a million men on the battlefield at a moment's notice. And then the power of God comes, and an army that is challenging them will wake up in the morning and suddenly everything goes strange in their eyes and they see Israelites everywhere they turn and they begin to kill everybody around them thinking they're Israelites and they're not. They're Moabites or they're Philistines or they're some other Edomites coming to attack Israel. The God of heaven thunders and sends hail down so that more hailstones kill people in the battle than the swords of the Israelites. There's no nation in history that has ever been like the Israelite people. But then they turn away from the God of heaven. They want to be coordinated with the world. They want to bring in the practices of the world and the philosophies of the world. And now 40 years, they're captive to the Philistines and they don't even have an interest in becoming free. This song I was very interested in today. How did those words go? Sanctified, Holy Ghost filled, fire baptized, Did you know there was a day in the church when that was the testimony of every person who sat in the pew? I would guess that that's not the testimony of one person in this house today. It's not my testimony. I want it to be my testimony. And that's why I'm crying out before God. I'm preaching to myself today as much as I am to you. We've gone to sleep. We don't understand the power of the church. We don't understand the power of God. 
So we live in a culture, we don't touch the culture. We have no power to touch it. Because we're not fire baptized. We're not filled with the Holy Ghost. The only sign of Holy Ghost stuff we see today are charlatans who stand up front and have you come up and lay hands on you and you fall down. And that's supposed to mean the Holy Spirit's around. Well, I'll tell you what, never in Scripture was that a sign of the Holy Spirit's presence. The sign of the Holy Spirit in Scripture was righteous living. The sign of the Holy Spirit in Scripture was going out and doing great deeds of valor for the name of Jesus Christ. It was always the people of God who had the mighty power of the Holy Spirit moving in them that changed nations. Benjamin Franklin. Listen to the great revival preachers. Whitfield, George Whitfield. He was so moved by the sermon, even though he was a wicked man. He took out his bag of money and gave every penny he had on him to Whitfield and said, preach, brother, preach. That was as close as he got to becoming a Christian. He was an occultist, given to darkness. But the fire from Wesley, from Whitfield, from others, would bring total change in America. In Wales, they had to issue an order that that nothing be brought back to the shipyards because so much had been stolen and they were returning so much, there wasn't room to receive what they were bringing in. The jails emptied. There was no one in the court docket. They had to close the bars because nobody would come in and drink. All people wanted to do in the Welsh revival was pray and sing a cappella and listen to preaching and get right with each other and their families. That's all they wanted to do. They wanted to get right with God. And so they made restitution for everything they'd stolen, everything they'd done. This is revival. This is the power of God coming and waking up a people. If we don't have this, the National Prayer Chapel will be a footnote. Nothing will happen here. Our, look, our sanctuary is almost empty. I know why. There's no fire burning here. No Holy Spirit power. Because we're asleep. We're asleep, but we're comfortable in our sleep. We're comfortable with our life. And I'm saying, God, dump us out as a church. Break the comfort addiction. Let us see what it means to have our loved ones go to hell. Let us see what it means for me to go to hell. And to say, enough, stand up. It shouldn't take revenge against the Philistines to stir us up. It should take a burning love in our hearts for our brothers and sisters to say, look, we've got to change. We've got to wake up. When was the last time you spent all night on your face praying 
for the salvation of a brother or sister, a mother or father, a son or a daughter. You know, we like to sleep too well. And of course, we have to go to work the next day. We don't have time to pray. Where's the stir in our hearts? Oh, God, I just plead with you today. Bring revival to the National Prayer Chapel. If you don't, soon you'll have to bring resurrection to us. Lord, there's still a spark in our hearts. Lord, we still at least talk the talk. But Lord, would you come and and move us and stir us and shake us? Lord, would you cause us to stand up and say, enough of this. I won't go this way anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus. Lord, have your way. Only you can do this. I trust you. Lord, I've not come this far to die without the Holy Spirit. Lord, send your Holy Spirit. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Oh, His glory.